Well, two weeks ago, we looked at John 18 and Peter's denial of Jesus. And it was, if you remember, a, a tough moment for Peter. And really, it's a tough moment for us, too, because, well, we're just like him. Where Jesus is the great I am, the faithful covenant-keeping Messiah, Peter, well, he's the I am not, the one who broke faith with Jesus and denied him despite his claims that he would die for Jesus. It's very much how we, we claim to be Christians. We claim to be followers of Christ. And in a moment, you know, despite our, our very best intentions, we can, we can take it all back with the word. But as we mentioned two weeks ago, I am not is not the end of Peter's story, and it's not ours either. And the reason it's not the end of Peter's story is, again, because of Jesus, not because of Peter. It's because of Jesus, who is the one who keeps faith for us and our salvation. Well, this week we come to verse 28, where Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor over all of Judea at that time. And we're only considering really just a very short section this morning, 28 through 32. But the scene uh, itself goes all the way through chapter 19, verse 16. And it, it's an incredible literary feat, really, uh, really quite genius in its writing. And it moves between uh, Pilate versus the Jewish elites, as well as scenes from inside the praetorium and then outside with the Jewish leadership and crowds and all these really interesting details that we're going to be covering over the course of the next several weeks. But this week we're covering just a, a short section that really sets us up for all of that, beginning with verse 28. So let me read for us. John chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's, uh, let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word about your son. And we pray now that the spirit would be amongst us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that this word would show us just how good you are and how beautiful you are, and how much you have loved us through your Son, how faithful and good he is, and how we have life in him. We pray all of this in his name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we read in verse 28 that Jesus was led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And John does not actually give us an account of what happened at Caiaphas's house. But Mark 15 briefly mentions that the chief priests, which included Caiaphas and the high priestly family like Annas, who we looked at uh, two weeks ago, who was, if you'll remember, kind of the power behind the power, really uh, kind of the godfather uh, of sorts. Well, Caiaphas plus, plus Annas and the high priestly family together with the elders and the scribes and, 
and all of the, the Sanhedrin together, which represents all of those kind of high priestly, uh, powerful families in Jerusalem. In short, you know, all of the heavyweight Jewish players in Jerusalem, well, they together agreed to send Jesus to Pilate. Luke gives us a slightly longer account in Luke 22 in which the same group of men question Jesus and they ask him if he claimed to be the Christ. And when you look at that account, Jesus responded first by by calling out uh, their continued refusal to accept him as the Christ. Then in turn, he went up them and claimed to be the son of man of Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7 speaks of a human who conquered Israel's enemies and in turn received worship alongside Yahweh, the ancient of days. So in other words, the son of man is no mere man. He's he's really the God man. And so having said this to them, uh, they asked him, are you saying you're the son of God? To which he said, you say that I am, which is a way of saying the truth is on your lips, brother. You done said it. As an aside, I don't think Jesus was being cryptic when he he said it like that, as if he didn't want to say, yep, I sure am. No, I think he was actually explaining how their questions would actually be vindicated and how his claims would be shown to be true. At his resurrection and ascension into heaven, which, by the way, is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, Jesus would be vindicated as the Christ, vindicated as the Christ, the Son of God. And what's fascinating to me is that his opponents had the opportunity. They had the opportunity to ask him straight up. And he both confirmed that, yes, he is the Christ, but also that he's the Son of God. And they, of course, already had plenty of evidence for this. It's why they wanted to kill him in the first place. But they would have even more evidence in the future with those events. And this is what Paul is after in Philippians 2 when he writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that's what's pictured in Daniel 7. And you see it again uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Now, think on this. Every human being, every divine spiritual being, so things like angels and cherubim, regardless of whether or not they are loyal to him, will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So these men, I, I can't imagine the regret they have. These men were looking him dead in the face and had those very words on their lips. You are the Christ, the son of God, and they rejected him. And at this, they they moved to take him to Pilate. Now, keep in mind that John 11 has already indicated that this group of men had decided much earlier that, that Jesus needed to die. They had already come to that conclusion and they saw him And this is the way John 11 pictures it, as a threat to Israel's stability, in particular as a threat to the temple, which, well, that included their own 
power and influence because the Sanhedrin was set on the temple, even as the temple symbolized God's presence. And they saw Jesus as a threat to the nation's continued existence because they feared the Romans. And they had a history of this because they could look at the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans who had had overrun them. And the greatest irony of the decision to kill Jesus came from Caiaphas, the high priest, who had said, it is better that one man should die than the whole nation should perish. And he was, of course, exactly right. He was correct. And of all people, the high priest should understand this the most. You know, this was central to Jesus's mission. And he mentioned it over and over again, that he was born to die. Born to die, but not for the reasons that Caiaphas put forward. As John comments in chapter 11, the high priest's words were actually a prophecy, even as he did not understand the impact of what he was saying. So Jesus was taken then, this is the movement when it says taken from Caiaphas, he was taken from the center really of Jewish power and influence to what symbolized worldly power and and influence in the Roman governor's headquarters. Now, Pilate's headquarters, uh, what was called a praetorium there in Jerusalem, was where the praetorian uh, guards were housed. And so this was really, if my memory serves correct, is right next to the temple, and it served as a buffet, you might say, against uh, the, the temple itself. And it was a symbol of, of Roman power because these weren't just Roman soldiers. You should think of the Praetorian Guard really along the lines of Navy SEALs or Army uh, Rangers, Special Forces, that kind of thing. So this is real, real power. And John mentions in addition to this, that this is where they are taking Jesus really to the symbol of worldly power. He mentions that it was morning. It was morning, and I don't think this is merely a detail about time, but rather indicates that salvation is actually at hand. In the Bible, like what happened at the Exodus and with the resurrection of Jesus, salvation often comes in the morning. It comes in the morning. So Jesus had come through the long, cold, dark night of his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then again, this this sham trial before Annas, and then again with Caiaphas in, in the council. And now the light dawned on his final day. This is his final day of his ministry, and in it there is hope. Despite all appearances, there is hope that salvation is actually at hand. Now, on the back half of verse 28, we read that the Jewish party would not enter Pilate's headquarters so as not to be defiled so they could still eat the Passover later that day. This, too, is an incredibly ironic moment to me. I mean, Jesus, as John the Baptist proclaimed him, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a Passover statement, right? He's the better Isaac and the the fulfillment of everything that the Passover looked forward to. And the Jewish elites, they can't see it. They can't see it. No, in fact, it's actually worse. In their hatred of Jesus, they are blind to him. 
They want him dead, and he is the Passover lamb that they need, and he is exactly what they do not want. So just as they are are set on unlawfully killing him, which is what they're doing here, they're set on unlawfully killing him. They are, at the exact same time, making sure to keep up the righteous facade by refusing to defile themselves in a Gentile residence so that they can take the Passover. You know, so for good reason, in Matthew 23, Jesus calls out the scribes and Pharisees saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's actually how hypocrisy works. Hypocrisy is not knowing what is right and then failing to do it, right? So when we come to the confession of sin, if you're taking that seriously, you're not being a hypocrite. You're admitting to being a a sinner. And if you think about this, this happens all the time. We know what God commands. We know what is good and right, and we fail to do it even as we agree to this. I mean, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. We routinely fail at keeping God's commandments even when we know better. That's why confession is a regular part of the Christian life. Hypocrisy is different. It is an insincerity. It's pretending to have qualities or beliefs that you do not really have. So for example, you know, it's not unusual in our circles, and, and I've encountered this my whole life, and I bet you have to, for a man to appear one way at church or at public gatherings where a certain uh, Christian or Christianish demeanor is expected, but in a different setting, you know, maybe at a private party or the golf course or the hunt camp, the easy racist jokes, and they're not so much jokes, or the, 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 the perverted sexual talk, they come to the forefront, and they come to be on display, and there's not a hint of shame when it happens. And what makes it hypocrisy is that the real man is actually indicated by his humor, not his public Christian demeanor. So even as he outwardly appears to so many people as a good man, The real man is far different, far different. And so it is here. You know, the reality of these men is not in their keeping of Jewish tradition in their concern with the Passover. That's the whitewashing tomb part. No, it's in their desire to kill Jesus where you see their lawlessness and how they are actually filled with dead bones as as Jesus describes it. Well, that takes us to Pilate. Now, there's a decent amount of historical sources on Pilate himself, outside of the Bible. And the picture we have of him in those sources is on par of what we see here in the Bible. And by all accounts, Pilate was not, this is actually being kind of kind to him. He was not a very competent or distinguished official. In fact, he was, he was pretty bad. He, he was both a, a weak ruler and a bully at the same time, which those two things often go together. You know, bullies often lash out in either verbal or, or physical violence because of their insecurities and their, their self-perceived weaknesses. They're trying to cover for, for what they don't have. And Pilate was just like that. He was just like that. 
And he often uh, vacillated between competing interests and was not concerned uh, with administering justice so much as he was uh, keeping himself in power and in good standing with Rome, whom he absolutely feared. So he was, in many ways, just in keeping with so many politicians today. So Pilate had a, a tense, to put it mildly, relationship with the Jewish elites. And for the most part, whatever they wanted, he was against and would try to undermine them as often as he could. So we read that the Jews would not come into his headquarters. So instead, he goes out to them. Now, part of this is the show of righteousness by this Jewish party. But part of it is also a power move. They, they won't go into Pilate. Pilate must go out to them, which is, I can't imagine a Roman official doing this. So it shows his, his, his weakness. And he asked them then, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, here's where it gets interesting. They don't have a charge. They're bringing him before the governor for, you know, to be put on trial, and they don't bring a charge. They say, if this man was not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So do you get what they're saying? They don't actually say what they think he's done to deserve capital punishment, at least not yet anyway. They eventually will. But just at this point, they're saying, no, 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 we think this one. And by the way, when you look at the Greek here, they refuse to, to use a personal pronoun. So they're, they're actually treating him almost as an object. We think this one is evil, and you, Pilate, need to kill him. Now remember, typically whatever the Jewish elites wanted, Pilate was against. So he responds with, uh, you, you go do whatever you want. You take him and judge him by your own laws. Go, go have a party, man. Go get it. To which the, the, this Jewish group says, no, no, no. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, that's not exactly true. There have been multiple times throughout Jesus's ministry in which people moved to kill him and failed to do it. And not long after this, and presumably some of the same group of leaders that are here in this moment would show up later in Acts 7, guess what they moved to do against Stephen? Without hesitation, they moved to kill him, and they do in a very public setting. So no, it's, when they wanted to kill somebody, they would, and Rome would often get out of the way. So it's clear then that what they really wanted was for Rome, by way of Pilate, to kill Jesus. That's what they're after. And John tells us that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken about what kind of death he would die, that is, on a cross, which raises the question, why? Why? Why a cross? And we're going to be answering this question over the next several weeks, but we're going to start to take an initial stab at it today. Now remember, the Jewish elites together with the Pharisees, and remember about the Pharisees, we're used to thinking of them as, as kind of the self-righteous, but what you really need to see them as is really uh, grassroots conservatives who were, who were trying to change the system, so to speak. So the Jewish elites, the very tops of the tops, and the grassroots, almost think like the Tea Party, if you remember that group, coming together, believe that Jesus threatened their own place and influence and authority in the nation itself. And in many ways, you know what? They were right. They were right. 
If left unchecked, Jesus would change things. He was changing things. And what they didn't realize is that by pursuing his death, they would absolutely change the world forever. At the same time, even as they wanted him dead, they feared the crowds who believed Jesus was possibly the Messiah and at the very least was a prophet sent by God. So remember, just days before at his triumphal entry, or what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the crowds had welcomed Jesus like a king into Jerusalem, just like they would have done with a Caesar in Rome. And they, they called him the heir of David. That's a royal uh, welcome. So, so they could not, this group could not move against Jesus like they would later move against Stephen because they feared, they feared the crowds and what killing him would do. So what they needed was both a, a charge that would force Pilate to kill Jesus and at the same time, a charge that would cause the crowds to turn on Jesus. So the charge they eventually bring to Pilate was that Jesus was a rival king to Caesar, a violent revolutionary like Barabbas. This is why Barabbas is such a key figure as we're going to be going through this in the next couple of weeks. Now, there is zero evidence that Jesus was anything like Barabbas. Zero. And Pilate knew it. He knew it. That's why Jesus' disciples were never arrested and why Pilate tried to wash his hands of the whole affair. Now, the penalty for upstart rival kings or violent revolutionaries, and in the ancient world, new kings typically got their thrones by way of violence. Well, the penalty for that was crucifixion. That's what Rome did to would-be kings or people who started coups or runaway slaves. But the Jewish leadership also needed a charge that would force the crowds to turn on Jesus and justify their delivering him over to Pilate to kill him. But they didn't just want to kill Jesus. They wanted to thoroughly discredit him and shame him as a rebellious son. That's why they frame him to their Jewish audience, and we're gonna see this in the coming weeks, as a false prophet as a false prophet who claimed to be equal with God, who was leading Israel astray. Now that charge wouldn't mean anything to Pilate in Rome. He wouldn't care. What would he care about some Jewish religion? But it meant a great deal to the Jewish people. And so the penalty for such a crime as being a rebellious son, according to Deuteronomy, was death by stoning and in turn, the displaying of the body on a tree. So this is why when you go throughout Jesus' ministry, they often move to stone him. It's why Stephen was stoned. It's why Paul nearly died from being stoned. So why a tree? In Deuteronomy, it is symbolic of a man cursed by God. And in the first century, a cross was thought of in just those terms. Those who were hung on a cross are cursed by God. So in a certain sense, really this, this kind of perverted sense, the Jewish elites perfectly understood Jesus' claims. He was the heir to David's throne, the Christ, 
who was no mere prophet, but God's son, who spoke with God's word and authority, who needed to die for the sins of his people and indeed for the sins of the whole world. And they rejected every last bit of it. And after he was nailed to the cross, I have to imagine, they hurried home to eat the Passover. When you consider what's on view here, it's, it just blows my mind. When you consider you know, all, all the, the political maneuvering and all the machinations of trying to get Jesus killed, you may be tempted to think that Jesus was passive in all of this. Or, or worse, that Jesus was outmaneuvered by his enemies. Let me tell you, that's certainly what Satan thought. That is certainly what Satan thought. After all, John, John highlights over and over again that he was bound and handed over from authority to authority. But though he was bound, like what Joseph says in Genesis 50, what men intended for evil, God intended for good. So think about it. Jesus could have easily pacified the Sanhedrin in his sham trial in Luke 22, but he not only confirmed their charge that he was the Christ, he doubled down on it, claiming to be the Son of God. And we're going to get to this next week, but he could have easily shown Pilate that he was not a violent revolutionary. I mean, the evidence was abundant. But instead, he confirmed to Pilate that, yes, I am a king, and I'm not merely a rival king to Caesar. That's too small. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords over everyone. He could have avoided all this injustice and the pain and suffering that went with it, but he did not. In fact, this was the plan. And these evil men went right along with it, thinking it was their idea. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. You see God's sovereignty at work in this. And as Hebrews 12 puts it, who for the joy, that is Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He could have avoided all things, but no, he went right for it. Why? What was the joy set before him that led him to do what he did? Well, clearly it was the love of the Father. It is love for the Father that led him to veer away from the, the cup of wrath and saying, I, I don't want to take it, but saying, no, your will be done. It was love for the Father that led him to the shame and humiliation of the cross. But I also think it is right to say, because this is how the New Testament paints it, and guess what? The entire Old Testament looks forward to this too. It was the joy of having his people with him forever that led him to that cross. Or perhaps more so, it's because he had willingly bound himself to his people. I heard this in an interview this morning with, with an author I really like. You know, when people say God can do anything he wants, that is true until he bounds himself. And he has bound himself to his people and he will not change. He will not let go. He will not relent. He will keep his word. For God so loved the world that he put himself on this path for us and our salvation. So the king of kings, 
and the Lord of Lords, the Passover lamb, the very word of God, the Christ, the son of the living God died for you. He was raised for you. He ascended to the right hand of God, the father for you. He poured out the Holy Spirit on you. He intercedes for you even now. And even as we are already in union with him through the spirit, which is what we have and enjoy right now, one day we will see him face to face And it is a joy to him that we will have that with him. That is the joy set before him that led him to the cross. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let's rest in that gospel today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. A covenant-keeping God who has bound himself to his people a people who are often faithless, who know what is right but don't often pursue it, who are fully dependent on you for everything. Lord, you're good. You're wonderful. You are faithful. There is no God like you. Thank you for this grace and mercy you've given to us that we know you and you know us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.